0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now.
0: Hey leaders, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting our important work this past year as we grow to master leadership collectively. And as we close out 2018, here are the top 10 most listened to episodes. We look forward to continuing to add value in 2019. Enjoy. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions. And this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi this is Lily and today we have the honor of speaking with Dr Christopher Tinken titles and talk alone do not make leaders leadership requires working with others to take collective action to benefit the greater good educational leadership is no different students do not have a voice at the education policy making table Education leaders need to stand up and advocate for policies and practices that benefit all students and strengthen the overall education system. Christopher has worked to advocate for children for over 20 years. First as an elementary school teacher, middle school principal, and assistant superintendent in the public school setting. And now as an associate professor of education leadership, management, and policy. Christopher works with educators on three continents to amplify the voices of children and improve education equity. Christopher practices his leadership driven by the concept of empowerment and collaboration and believes that by working together on common goals, people can accomplish more than individuals pursuing their own agenda. So welcome, Dr. Christopher Tinkin. How are you?
1: I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Yes, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm ready. All right, Chris, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now?
1: Sure. You know, I was one of those kids in high school who did not know what I wanted to be. I didn't really show a lot of academic promise at the time. So I remember my guidance counselor telling me that I should join the army. I I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in the full-time Army, so I joined the Army National Guard. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: at that time, back in the late 80s, they had a program in which 17-year-olds could sign up and go to basic training during their summer of their junior year in high school, and then uh, attend advanced training during the summer of their high school graduation. Mm -hmm. So I signed up literally on my 17th birthday, and I headed to basic training 14 days later. I was by far the youngest and smallest person in my unit. So that was a bit overwhelming, but it worked out. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned about leadership. And I also learned that I wanted to go to college. So when I came home after basic training, I attended community college for a year and got some academic confidence. I did really well there. And at the time, I was also working as a ski instructor. And I was assigned to teach in a program for three to five-year-olds. And I found that I absolutely loved it.
0: Okay. So it, so it was. That, you know, you either find out you love it or you're scared to death. <laughs> oh yeah, that real,
1: real quick actually. Uh, so it was then that I decided to enter the field of education as an elementary education major, and I was accepted to Kutztown University. I did really well in my undergraduate studies, and I became a teacher. And at that time, I was the only male elementary school teacher in my school district. Ooh. So people look to me for informal leadership. And I actually remember at the end of my first year, my principal at the time sat me down during the, you know, your summative year end conference. And he looked at me and he said, okay, the next thing you're going to do is apply to Rutgers graduate school of education. And you're going to go get your administration leadership certificate because you're going to be a principal. So being a non-tenure teacher, I did exactly what he told me. I, I applied At Rutgers, and I got accepted. I finished my master's degree a couple years later. And after my fifth year of teaching, I found myself in my first education leadership position, which was an assistant principalship. And from there, I just started getting promoted to higher and higher positions so that within just five years in administration, I was an assistant superintendent in a school district with 8,000 students and eight schools. In between becoming an assistant principal and assistant superintendent, I had a superintendent tell me that I should go back and get my doctorate, which I did. After serving in public education for almost 15 years, I accepted a position at Seton Hall University, and I've been teaching in the Department of Education Leadership Management and Policy for the last nine years, training others to be education leaders. And I also do leadership and professional development work on three continents, And I've been lucky enough to have some visiting professorships in Italy where I study education policy.
0: Oh my goodness, there's so much to talk about. I'm so excited. And you also wrote a book recently, right?
1: Sure. I wrote my third book called Define Standardization, Creating Curriculum for an Uncertain Future. And that came out about a year ago.
0: Okay, great. And if we wanted to purchase it, where could we do that?
1: It's available everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. You can get it anywhere.
0: Perfect. Now, you mentioned that when you went to the Army, you learned about leadership and about yourself. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Keep in mind, I went to basic training as a Mm -hmm. 17-year-old. I had never been exposed to something that intense. And what I learned about myself is that if I could put my mind to something and stay motivated, I could do it. And what I learned about leadership is it's the leader's job to make people feel like that. It's the leader that should empower people and make them feel that they can do anything that they put their mind to. And that's what I learned from the drill sergeants. It was very intense, but at the end of the day, they were there to help you do things that you never thought you could do. And they succeeded.
0: Well, and that's a valuable lesson to learn early on, especially.
1: Yeah, and and it's helped me throughout my life. It's, Mm It's one of those things that I keep reflecting on. That when I face challenges, I know that if you just continue on, uh, sooner or later things will work out.
0: Great. Now, Chris, how would you describe your leadership style? In
1: terms of my leadership style, I think it matters more about how others would describe my style, and I would Mm -hmm. hope that other people would describe it as collaborative. Mm -hmm. As a leader, I try to work with others. My goal is really to empower others and build internal capacity so that you know when i leave the programs and processes continue on because i've empowered others to take control
0: so you think about your legacy about the programs that you leave behind it's important that they have sustainability
1: i think one of the main goals of a leader is to get others to be able to take over or walk in your shoes when you're not there if people are always looking to you for what to do then I'm not sure you've actually exhibited leadership. I think the goal should be able to educate and empower people. Mm -hmm. When I enter a new position, I'm trying to put myself out of business. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get you to a point where you don't need me anymore. And if I can achieve that, then I've succeeded.
0: And you know, Chris, when I hear that, I hear a leader who's very secure in who he is. I think one
1: of the things you need to think about as a leader is that it shouldn't Be all about you. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I received was the, the idea of listen, be kind, and make others shine. Your job is to build the internal capacity so
0: others can look good. So we've nailed two questions in one. The best advice coupled with a great quote listen, be kind,
1: and make others shine.
0: And make others shine. I love it. So give us another quote about leadership that really speaks to you and why.
1: So there's a quote from Robert Kennedy that I used at the end of my last book from his day of affirmation speech. And it says that few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events. Each time a person stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, that person sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And that's really one of the things I think leadership should be. It's about sending out ripples and helping other people create those ripples.
0: And sometimes we don't realize that that ripple, we may not see the end game, but at least we're a part of making that happen. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Now, um, Chris, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I think I'm most inspired by a leader
1: who's mild-mannered, gets results, and then gives the credit. To others. Because I believe if you have to tell people you're the leader, you're probably not the leader.
0: So you're inspired by leaders who are mild-mannered. And yet, when I think about you in the army with a drill sergeant who taught you so much about yourself and leadership, and I also think about this other principal who pretty much said to you, you need to go to Rutgers. Um, would you describe them as mild-mannered some people wouldn't think a drill sergeant is mild man. I know, that's what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> all right. So I had four different drill sergeants and they were all great. But the, the one thing that struck me about the one that impacted my life the most was he would do everything that we did, but he would do it in ways, for example, we'd go out on a march and our backpacks would be 35 pounds. He would put 60 pounds of weights in his backpack. He wouldn't go around saying that he was doing that. We would simply see him do that put on his backpack and walk for 15 miles. So he was a person that just led by action. He didn't have to tell us all the things that he was doing that were more difficult than what we were doing. We just knew he was out there doing everything we were doing but more. And so by leading by action, I considered him to be mild mannered.
0: He didn't toot his own horn and No, it was action.
1: To- it was action not words.
0: Okay, great. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: I've been so lucky to have worked with so many great leaders. I think some of the best advice in terms of education leadership has been from the start, act on behalf of children, not your own self-interest. So when I approach projects or I approach leadership in general, I try to look at it through the eyes of a child, Mm -hmm. um, the children who have to deal with these programs or processes and really go from there.
0: Great. I know you've been a part of many teams. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one?
1: I think, really, first and foremost, a good team should be united around a shared vision. So, if you believe in leadership that's collaborative, one of the first things you're going to do is try to develop a shared vision. And from that vision, all your programs and processes derive from there. I think it's important to have differences of opinion on a team, and I think those differences of opinion should be encouraged. Same thing with risk-taking. I think decisions that are made together based on the best available evidence and the conditions on the ground are important. I think you build a good team by modeling the behaviors that you want the team members to exhibit.
0: What role does trust play here?
1: I think trust is crucial. If your team members don't trust you to have the best interest of the organization, their best interests at heart, then I don't think you're going to get that risk-taking that you need to really develop innovative ideas, creative programs, and move the organization forward.
0: What's the first thing we should be doing to develop trust? Listening,
1: I think, is one of the things that's overlooked, especially with new leaders They'll go into a a team situation and they'll be the ones doing all the talking when, in fact, I think they should be prompting discussion through some well-placed questions and listening to what the other team members are saying. Once people realize you're listening, and I think they realize you're listening because at the end of that, you're taking some kind of action related to what they said. So you're listening and you're respecting what they said and you're taking action with them and on their behalf.
0: Mm -hmm we need to learn to listen because, you know, we can be told to listen, but if we don't know how, it's important to really get that on straight. Sure.
1: And I think people feel empowered when they feel listened to Mm -hmm. as opposed to being talked at. I've been a participant in some administrative meetings where the formal leader was doing all the talking at the team members. And at the end of the meeting, everyone's feeling like, They're not empowered and they're just following orders and they have no real stake in the programs or processes.
0: Yeah, I call that, what is it, the walking dead or (laughs) like a a, something like that. (laughs) We're going to sit in this meeting and we're going to hear, you know, like Charlie Brown's teacher. (laughs) Exactly. And I've seen plenty of those. Thank goodness for leaders like yourself and other leaders that I've had on the show. We're changing that. And it is really about listening and building trust. So I really appreciate that. Now, Chris, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life?
1: I think it's just the ongoing challenge for me as an education leader of trying to always act on behalf of children. Children don't have a voice at the policy making table. And so a lot of the education reforms, policies, and programs that are mandated really leave the child out. And as a leader, you can find yourself being drawn to self-preservation, being drawn to taking the path of least resistance because it's so much easier just to go along with state mandates or federal mandates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's so difficult to try to work around them and get others to see the benefit of working around them. So I think it's just an ongoing challenge of staying focused on why you are in your leadership position, not being tempted to take the easy way out and just pushing forward and trying to constantly keep people on the team.
0: Mm Can you give us some specifics? Because this does happen quite a bit. In fact, a lot of people have taken on leadership positions and they go in with this intention of acting on behalf of children. And then because they have to preserve or they feel like they have to preserve their jobs. And, and, you know, most of us do want to preserve our jobs. It can shift. So can you give us some examples Mm -hmm. of how that has been a struggle for you? And what did you do? Sure. I was in an education leadership position
1: near the beginning of my career and I was a new person on the team just coming into the district. had my goals of creating child-centered programs, doing good things for kids, and I quickly noticed after several administrative team meetings that that wasn't the goal of the district. And the goal of the district was really each leader to look good, each leader to satisfy state mandates and federal mandates and really not worry too much about what was going on with Mm -hmm. kids. So I tried during meetings and in one-on-one meetings with various leaders from other departments to push an agenda of child-centered programming and things that we should be doing on behalf of kids. And after the first year, I realized that that wasn't the mission of the district. The mission was really kind of self Engrandizement and, you know, making yourself look good externally and with the newspapers. And so at that point, I had to make a decision. Am I going to continue to share my skills with this district? Or should I go somewhere else where the district really wanted to move forward on a child-centered platform? I think that's important for young leaders to learn. I work with a lot of people in our master's programs. Many times they're in districts that have been eternally broken. They're not moving forward. They're not child centered. And they ask, you know, what should I do? I can't do anything. I can't get anything done. And sometimes my suggestion is, well, then you have to leave. You have to go to a place that's going to put your skills to use and you have to help the kids there. And I know some people might think like that's quitting, but I don't think so. It's really about going somewhere else to make an even bigger difference. And so that's what I've
0: done in my career several times. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. How important is it to Have someone to talk to, like a mentor or a coach? I think it's crucial.
1: I can't see how you can become an effective leader in a vacuum. I think, especially if you believe in collaborative leadership, that you need to create a support system made up of other leaders where you can bounce ideas, you can talk about challenges that you face. I think every successful leader has had a support system. To help him or her move forward. So, yeah, I think it's really important to have mentors. In fact, I tell the candidates in our administrative preparation programs it doesn't so much matter where you work, it matters who you work for. Because if you're going to go into a place and not learn anything and not be able to grow as a leader, then I'm not sure that that's a position worth taking.
0: As leaders, we face that often. And sometimes it's difficult to make those decisions because we don't want to quit on the kids, but we feel stuck. And so I love what you said, that you can't operate in a vacuum and having people speak into your life. well, absolutely. I think, especially when you're looking for your first leadership job, you're sometimes willing to take
1: any job you can get because you want the experience. But I think it's the type of experience that matters. So Mm -hmm. it's good to be picky. It's good to make sure you're working for the right person and that you have other people that you can call on to grow as a leader.
0: Great. Now, Chris, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes?
1: Well, of course, it's not just mine. It was my greatest team success when I was an assistant superintendent. My team and I worked to help redesign our high school, and we created a program in which the seniors at the high school, because they had enough credits, they could leave school after fourth period. And we created a menu of options for them so that they could actually start to build a bridge between high school and the post-secondary world while still in high school. So for example, we created a program in which our 400 seniors had options to be apprentices, job shadowing, go up to the community college for college work. We had students connected with the local unions where they were able to start working on their union card while they were still in high school. We created programs where our future teachers we were able to go and get practicum teaching experience in our elementary schools. So, we really opened up the post secondary world for our kids while they were still in high school. And I mean, we started that program back in 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. and it still continues nine years after I left. So, I see that as one of my best successes because it was a team effort and the program is still successful.
0: It certainly speaks to your leadership. You know, what we spoke about at the very beginning, how sustainability of programs that you put in place is really important, especially programs that really benefit the students. Sure, and I think that program was an
1: example where we worked collaboratively with a lot of different stakeholders. So there's a lot of people in that district who have personal sweat equity Mm -hmm. in that program. And I think that's one of the reasons it still
0: goes on today because a lot of people have personal attachment to it. So let me ask you a question about your book because it's Define Standards, Creating Curriculum for an Uncertain Future. It's very connected to what you just said because you were creating programs for an uncertain future for these high school students. Yes. So can you tell us a bit about your book, why you wrote it?
1: Sure. The impetus from the book really came from working with and talking to school administrators and teachers and i do a lot of work with curriculum my specialty is curriculum and assessment at the state national and international level so i work with leaders and teachers on building curricular programs that allow students to experience what i call the unstandardized skills where they can learn creativity innovation persistence Empathy, compassion, collaboration, communication, hey leaders, all those things. If you that haven't downloaded your copy content, of the Master Leadership Journal, time, go to masterleadership.org, really forward person. slash person. So in my work, I constantly get run into and begin your that, leadership. Well, we can't we do this because the state says we have to do this. Or we can't do this because we don't I've have the time or we have to cool get kids ready to the test. Mm-hmm. So I decided to leadership. write a book to show slash and help education leaders and teachers to do all these unstandardized things with kids, a more well-rounded education but in the context of standardization. Standardization is here right now. It's the reality for teachers and educators. So I'm trying to help them work within the system in which they find themselves, but also at the same time work around the system. It's the concept of creative compliance. How to do to- <laughs>
0: I love that, creative compliance.
1: How to do the right thing without getting fired so you can live lead another day. That's really what brought me to writing the book. The first part of the book, what I do is I rebut the whole notion that we need to standardize. I rebut the whole notion that American public education is failing. I rebut that with a ton of data from international tests and some other things. And the second part of the book is really how to design curriculum to unstandardize education in a standardized environment.
0: I love it. Creative compliance. (laughs)
1: Yes. I think leaders need to begin to think like that. How can we do the things that we know are good for kids, but not get fired? Because at the end of the day, we need to live to lead another day so that kids can experience quality education. So there's strategies that you can use to get things done on the ground, but still be in
0: compliance. Great. Again, define standardization, creating curriculum for an uncertain future. Wonderful book. Get it on Amazon. Okay. So Chris, Many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now?
1: So I think being a lifelong learner means always being willing to change, being willing to change your position when confronted with new evidence, not getting into a rut, always trying to do new things, be creative or innovative. Uh, And so that's what I've really tried to do throughout my career is to always kind of look out a couple years in advance and say, hmm, what are we going to need five years from now, 10 years from now? Let's start thinking about those types of programs. Yes, it's easier to continue to do what we're doing right now. But at the end of the day, is that really going to move the needle in terms of some of the things that I am working on or learning now? I think it's just a continuous journey to learn more about yourself, how to be a better person when you're around others, how to empower others, how to inspire others. Once again, you know, we can continue to use the same type of leadership strategies or skills that have gotten us to Mm -hmm. where we're at. But I think if you're going to continue to move in a positive direction, you need to be willing to change and learn how to lead in different ways. And so that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Now. So how do you how do you do that Chris? How do you learn about yourself? This is incredibly important. I think you're absolutely right. But how do you learn more about yourself?
1: So I think it's a conscious effort for me mm-hmm. to reflect on my leadership behaviors and in terms of how I view others. For example, mm-hmm. I'm someone who really values creativity and innovation and trying to think outside of the box. So I find myself sometimes when I'm in the presence of people who are very negative or very narrow-minded, I find myself wanting to slip into a more autocratic leadership role and say, well, this is the way we're doing it, and if you don't like it, you need to find something else to do. Of course, I catch myself now Mm -hmm. doing that. The 27-year-old me would have just said that and did say that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you find that when you act that way, you turn people off. But it is a constant kind of reflection Process mm-hmm. of okay, where do you want to go? And if you say that right now, are you going to get there, even though you're right? But if you tell that person that they're being narrow minded and you know it's my way or the highway, are you going to get to where you want to go? It's just self control, and I think that's something that I'll be working on as long as I'm
0: in a leadership position. Not just you, my friend, not just you, <laughs> <laughs> and and I love that because you're absolutely right. I mean, we may want to say those things, but. That's what really primes our leadership, situations like that, that challenge who we are and how we respond to difficulties like that, and how we can get a person from point A to point B, from being a negative person to someone who maybe opens up to new possibilities.
1: Well, that's a great point, because I think you're bringing, I think you're bringing up the point about being mindful. Mindfulness mm-hmm. of yourself, the type of personality and style that you have versus the personality and styles that you're working with and if you are someone who wants to get things done go 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 and then you run into a group of people who are not like that you really need to step back and like you said think about okay how can I work within this new style or this new context to empower people and move people
0: forward instead of trying to run them over. Right. Thank you so much for that. Now, if there were something you could change in education, Chris, what would that be?
1: Well, we were just talking about it. It's the fixation with standardization. I think standardization is stifling creativity, it's stifling student interest and passion. And I think it's just completely unnecessary. The United States is and has been, for a very long time, one of the most creative and innovative countries on the planet. We are a place where we allow people to follow their interests and passions. And for some reason, for the past 15 or 16 years, we have become enamored with this idea that everyone needs to learn the same way and be able to do the same things at the same time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I just don't see that just in basic, human nature that's stifling and when you do that to children you can see the effect that that has on kids where you're trying to make kids fit a system that was really designed by adults for adults so I'm really pushing this idea of unstandardizing education within your sphere of control whatever you control do things to allow students to express themselves give students choice and voice you're not going to change the world but you can change the things that you control within your sphere of influence.
0: I'm thinking about what you said, how standardization can be stifling. It can stifle the creativity and passion of students. But it stifles our creativity and our passion as well. And so it's this vicious cycle because students, if they don't see us being creative and passionate, what role model do they have for really getting that?
1: Absolutely. Students are very perceptive. And they know when their teacher's having a bad day. They know when their teacher's demoralized or when their teacher's not able to express him or herself. And they pick up on that. They see very quickly the types of things that teachers are being made to do in terms of standardization. And it trickles right down to them.
0: All right, Chris. So what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should?
1: So on the professional side, Mm -hmm. I picked up a copy of... Daniel Koretz's new book, The Testing Charade, pretending to make schools better. And Koretz is out of Harvard, but he wrote this book in a way that is not researchy at all. It's not wonky. It is just such an easy read, but in his writing, I think it's one of the best books for people to understand what's going on with standardized testing and how it really cannot tell us anything that's important about children Mm -hmm. or teachers. And he also provides some great ideas on what we can be doing differently. So on the professional side, I just read that. And on the personal side, I read a great book. It won the Pulitzer. It's called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. So you can't separate education policy from social policy. Mm -hmm. And this book just takes you deep inside the world of welfare. And how the system is actually set up for people who are on welfare, it sets them up for failure. I mean, I spend a lot of time studying economic issues because they're so connected to education. But I learned so much from this book. It helped enlarge my perspective of what a large segment of our population is going through on a personal level. So I would recommend that book to anybody who wants to get a better understanding of really what's going on in America in terms of how we Treat our children and the citizens that need the most. It's somewhat shocking. And Matthew Desmond was the author of that book.
0: Thank you so much for that. Now, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have?
1: It may sound cliche or easy, but I just think you just reflect on what it is you have to get done that day and where that task fits into your bigger vision. And I think you got to embrace the responsibilities that you have, but empower others. To embrace them as well.
0: So, you have two children, right? Yes. And currently, you're. Um...
1: I'm a professor at Seton Hall in the Education Leadership Department, and I also work with leaders in schools around the country
0: in three continents on education issues. Right. So, you have to be intentional about reflecting. Sure. And that's one of the things I think as I've been
1: continuing to grow as a leader, reflection has become more important for me. I know I didn't reflect enough when I was first starting out. It was really more of the idea of just getting stuff done. But I think you really learn to lead when you reflect on what you're getting done and the way you're going about it. I try to start my day with a simple idea, what am I doing today? And what do I need to do it well?
0: Great. Thank you so much. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership?
1: Well, if I were to go back in time, I would probably tell myself, relax, you've got this. Let others get it with you. And I think that might have been the biggest lesson because as a young leader, you sometimes feel like you have to be the one out in front. You have to be the one taking on all the challenges, Mm -hmm. but that's not the way it works. Learn from your mistakes, Mm
0: -hmm. reflect
1: on what it is that you're doing. In relationship to the overall mission, admit when you're wrong, move on, improve. Another thing that I've been thinking about is there's no such thing as perfect. There's only better. And just strive to get better. That's what I would have told myself. I probably would have listened to some of that. I've been a pretty good listener in terms of taking advice, but I wish I would have known all of those things 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, and I know that a lot of times what also happens is that young leaders have this thing where they need to prove their worth. And if it's sustained, that kind of thinking is dangerous because it can lead to burnout. To live in that environment where you're trying to prove your worth all the time is pretty toxic. And it behooves the leaders of leaders to what you talked about, add value to people, to empower people, and to help them move forward and grow in this way. So thank you so much for that.
1: Absolutely, and I think what you're describing there is there's a theory of leadership that pervades the American culture, and it's called the great man theory, and I guess it comes from this culture of rugged individualism and all that kind of John Wayne nonsense, but as you brought up, that's not the real world, and that's not really effective leadership. It's really about moving a team forward, moving a group of people, building internal capacity of the organization.
0: Great. Now, Chris, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: So if there's one piece of advice that I could give new education leaders, it would simply be make sure that you are on the side of children. Because if you're on the side of children, you will always be on the right side of history.
0: Well said, Chris. Thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's been a lot of fun.